You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. My name is Gillian McIntyre, and I coordinate the adult programs here at the AGO, and I am absolutely delighted today to be welcoming you all for Camille Paglia's talk. It's one of our brown bag lunch talks that have been so successful. So before we start, and there should be a chance for Q&A, and there will be a book signing at the end, but before Camille comes to talk to you, I'd like to invite Elizabeth Smith, who is the Executive Director of Curatorial Affairs at the AGO, to speak a little and introduce Camille. Thank you, Gillian, and um, let me echo Gillian's welcome to all of you. It's great to have such a full house, such a, such a great crowd gathered, and we certainly hope that after um, you have enjoyed your lunch and what promises to be a most stimulating presentation, that, you, that you'll stay for the rest of the day at the AGO and explore the galleries. Uh, and if any of you are not members, we of course encourage you to consider that, because that way you can return as often as you like to the AGO. This is the third in our brown bag lunch and talk series of distinguished scholars and cultural icons. And this series is made possible by the support of Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin and Ira Gluskin. And we thank them very much for their generosity, vision, and leadership. It now gives me great pleasure to introduce today's speaker. Camille Paglia is University Professor of Humanities and Media Studies at the University of the Arts in Philadelphia. She is an author, teacher, and social critic. Among the books she has written are Break, Blow, Burn, Sexual Personae, Sex, Art, and American Culture, and Vamps and Tramps. She has also written The Birds, a study of Alfred Hitchcock, and numerous articles on art, popular culture, feminism, and politics. Camille Paglia has been described as America's premier intellectual provocateur, and with her new book, Glittering Images, A Journey Through Art from Egypt to Star Wars, she returns to the subject that brought her fame, the great themes of Western art. Reviewers have described this latest book as passionately argued, brilliantly written, and filled with Paglia's trademark audacity, and destined to change the way we think about our high-tech visual environment. Please join me now in welcoming Camille Paglia. Thank you very much for coming today. Um, what, uh, I've just spent five years writing this book, Glittering Images, which I tried to keep as short as possible to be a, 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 an introduction to the uh, arts for people who already know about the arts, but to, to those who haven't really thought about art history, let's say, since, since college. Um, and what I'm showing you today are not images from the book, but rather the images that are also rands. I've, I've chosen a little over 30. There probably were 100 altogether. And it's similar to what I did um, with, uh, okay, could we have the number of flashes, please? Oh, yeah, no flashes, please. Um, Break, Blow, Burn, in my last book on poetry, I've, I wrote, after the book was published, uh, an essay called Final Cut, which um, talked about the, the principles by which I, I chose uh, poems for the book, and I included um, in it examples of poems that also were also rants. Anyway, that, that 
that has been included in the, in the latest edition of Break Will Burn as, as an epilogue, final cut. Okay, um, so the, the reason I, I wrote this book is I'm very concerned about uh, the, the visual culture that be currently being experienced by, by young people. I think it's um, that um, the, the uh, manic, uh, hyperkinetic editing of TV commercials, the distorted space of uh, video games, um, the standard distortion, even on, even on t TV sets when you, when you switch it to widescreen mode and so on, I think has cr it's created a, a, a very unstable kind of, um, of an environment. It, the, the Twitter and, and, and Facebook and, and the ads, pop-up ads flashing at you from computer screens and so on. There's a, a barrage of uh, visual stimuli that I think um, overloads the brain that may be interfering with you know, children's cognitive development, may be implicated in ADD, attention deficit disorder. But um, in, in my view, there's no way that you can physiologically survive this barrage without the brain changing. I think the brain is changing um, and just deadening the part of itself, okay, that is the, the intake valves, okay, uh, are, 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 are such that there's just no way a person can actually survive with this kind of constant barrage of information, just sitting down, you know, in the, the flight uh, Air Canada from Philadelphia yesterday. Okay, right at eye level is a is a, 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 a screen embedded into the seat in front of me, impossible to turn off. Okay, flashing, you know, and at one in Philadelphia, there are there are video screens on top of the of the, at the gasoline uh, uh, station. Okay, to, like pumping gasoline, you have this barrage coming at you. So there's, again, there's some, uh, I I'm not a luddite. I don't want to stop uh, development of culture. I was I was starting to write, for example, for the web from the, you know, the from the very start. I was writing in the very first issue of Salon.com in 1995 and so on. There's no way to stop any kind of evolution. However, it, it seems to me that it's the obligation of educators to, um, to identify what is being lost in a culture, okay, at every great uh, surge forward, and then to supply it uh, to um, not only to one's own students, but to, but to the general audience. So at any rate, without, without further ado, um, let, let me, let's just start uh, looking at the images that didn't make it into, into glittering images. And a book which crosses 3,000 years, begins with, um, with the Egyptian tomb painting, and then just proceeds systematically you know, down the centuries. By the way, the, the, the actual chronology of, of the book is, would be considered reactionary okay? in, in terms of the current uh, chic um, approaches to the, to the humanities and the universities. Chronology has been completely abandoned because okay? don't you know history doesn't exist. There is no meaning in history. There's no pattern in history. There's nothing objective. There's no, nothing connected. Okay? And therefore, what's done today is uh, this thing called cultural studies, which is neither cultural nor particularly uh, studious. Um, and you you just you just like take little bits of things you know from all over a TV show a, a novel you make a reference to Hegel to late capitalism you toss it up and down like a, a popcorn popper right and that's called cultural studies it's completely historical ignorant of every tradition um, and I, I personally consider uh, what passes for scholarship these days in the universities is a complete fraud in the humanities departments uh, uh, you know our, our finest students are, are being uh, are being undermined um, maleducated by a, a style of cynicism, okay, of sneering, okay, um, and, and what I'm, I'm saying in, in Glittering Images is that art has a spiritual dimension. 
uh, and, that, and that the artistic mission is spiritual in nature. And the only reason I can get away with this is that I'm a professed atheist and, and seem to have made that fashionable, actually, since I first went on the road in the early 90s. I mean, there was one prominent British atheist, Richard Dawkins, okay, but, it's, but I was the one who went on, on the road in the early 90s and was arguing, you know, for this position. But um, as I say in the introduction to Glittering Images, um, that, you know, I take religion very seriously. All the great world religions are like gigantic bodies of poetry and art. Uh, they're, they're comprehensive compendiums of wisdom about human existence. Okay, it's taken thousands of years to accumulate. So I, I say in the introduction, sneering at religion is juvenile, symptomatic of a stunted imagination. So what I'm, and, and there, are, there are people I, I mean by that, okay, who are, who are maybe prominent uh, on the international scene for um, for lobbying spitballs at religion without ever lifting a finger to actually research religion. Right? So, I, I, what I, so I'm, this book is aimed at um, at, at liberals, okay, who um, who have a, a cynical kind of supercilious deconstructive approach to, to culture. Um, and I'm, I'm arguing again for, for a return to the, the spirituality, the spiritual quest that I think was actually the essence of the 1960s, my generation. It's been completely lost, partly because the people who were most engaged in that quest took too many psychedelics and um, took, them off, <laughs> took themselves off the scene. Okay. And I'm also aiming my book at conservatives who, uh, is it, 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 at least uh, in, in, in the United States, um, are, um, belong to a branch of Protestantism that is rather iconoclastic, goes all the way back to the actual destruction of, of images counseled by Martin Luther and, and Knox, Calvin and Zwingli, when not only were statues, medieval statues and stained glass windows uh, destroyed, but even organs, okay? Anything without a, a, a basis in um, the Bible was regarded as a, correctly probably, regarded as a pagan intrusion into medieval um, Catholicism. So they, uh, so in the United States, conservative calls to a return to traditional education often exclude consideration of the arts. Well, I'm, what I'm arguing with the book is that um, the conservatives have no business talking about a return to, to traditional Western um, values without educating themselves and their children in the history of the arts, which would require them to, their, to, to get over their phobia about the nude. Okay? Uh, it's not necessarily the erotic nude because the, you know, the great Greek nudes, the athletic nudes, of the archaic period uh, were simultaneous with the birth of democracy. There is actually the, uh, the, the birth of Western individualism was, com was completely um, connected to the emergence of the, the, the beautiful, perfectly proportioned uh, young male athlete, the Kouros sculptures of, of the ar archaic period. Um, so this, uh, this, this book is the first step in my crusade okay, to try to get the teaching of art history into um, primary schools. Okay? I mean, it, it's not just it asking kids to you know, make patterns with construction paper and glue pots and, and so on. This kind of John Deweyite, every child has inner creativity that must be unleashed. I mean, I, I respect Dewey. I didn't, I didn't mean to make, take a hit there at him. All right, but um, it, it, it must also mean an introduction to great images, great artists from the past. Young people must be trained how to look at great still images. Okay, and, and it, the, the eye has its own has its own dynamic. Okay, which would need to be recovered in, in this period where it's constantly being assaulted. So I I, I want um, uh, art history to be in the schools. And I also want, in the United States, a vastly increased um, arts funding 
right now um, that arts funding is under a terrible cloud because of the, of the idiotic um, controversies in the U.S. over sacrilegious, you know, sacrilegious art often involving third or fourth-rate works like Andre Serrano's Piss Christ, okay, which is a dreck, okay, and it does not deserve to be as famous as it, as it is, okay, a, a plastic crucifix submerged in a glass beaker of the artist's urine, okay, photographed in, in, in large scale, uh, you know, what this is, it's a gimmick, it's a postcard, okay, basically is what, what that is. Um, what, what, what I'm arguing is that the age of, of uh, that kind of subversive or transgressive gesture, it's over. The avant-garde is over. It had a wonderful run. It began in the late 18th century, okay, with the rise of Romanticism, okay? Um, and the avant-garde was extremely vigorous right down through abstract expressionism. But since pop art, okay, I, I, you know, it's become simply uh, you know, a tired gesture that has been milked to the extreme for, for, for career advancement. The last authentically subversive work, in my view, was Robert Maplethorpe's photographs from the late 1970s of the gay, you know, sadomasochistic underground in, in, in New York City. And everything else is, to me, a fraud, okay? Because an avant-garde gesture, by definition, should cost something. Should, you, that the artist must pay a price you know, for it to be authentically avant-garde meaning um, ostracism, derision, okay, poverty, the way the Impressionist painters suffered it, abstract expressionists, depressed, many, several of them committed suicide and so on. Right? And today, the, the avant-garde gesture, what does it get you? It gets you written up in major papers, gets you government grants, gets you a job you know, at the University of Toronto. Okay? All right? <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm, it's completely bankrupt, okay? All right? it, is, it is not subversive or transgressive when you have career rewards from it, okay? So people have got to wake up from the sleep they're in and this torpor to imagine that oppositional art has, is the nature of all art. No, it isn't, okay? Only a fraction of art in the whole history of art has been oppositional. Okay? Most art has in, been in sync, okay, with, it, with, the, with the values of its own culture. And if artists intend, to recover their creativity, they must start wake up and get out of the ghettos they're in, the agile ghettos, okay, and look at their own culture and try to communicate with people who don't necessarily agree with them politically or anything else. Okay, so that's part of my crusade. All right now, <clears throat> all right, so. <laughs> I'm talking so fast because I know this is a brown bag lunch and you have to get back to work. All right, so. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now so let's have the lights and let's see what's, what's going to happen. Let's hope it will be. So the very first thing, okay, here, um, I want to show, uh, here we go. Uh, are, the light, are we having dimming of the lights above? Yes. Um, before I get an image, um, the, the sun is very bright on the, on the louvers there, so um, before I go. All right, so we're going in order, in chronological order. All right, so first, okay, the first image I want to show is, ah, yes. Now, so this is, um, we don't know what to call it, uh, Minoan snake goddess is the way it's generally um, filed. It's just a, it's a, a, an object um, that's, uh, the materials are, are faience, which is it's a, a glazed pottery found on the island of Crete and only um, in 1903. I mean, it's an object that whose meaning, we, 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 it's only speculative. Okay? We, we can't really know what this object meant to uh, Minoan culture at its height. People approximately dated to 1600 BC, 
Um, it was dug up by Sir Arthur Evans uh, when um, he was exploring the ruins of the palace at Canossus. But here we, ha here we have one of those examples of a great civilization, extremely powerful, that just fell, okay? um, maybe due to an earthquake and tsunami, but this enormous culture just disappeared and in the, in the ruins was found this, this um, object. It, uh, people, I'm not sure whether it's a goddess or a priestess, certainly there's some sort of a snake handling um, cult going on here, a ritual. There are, you know, similar to there are you know snake handling um, uh, rituals in in the mountains of the Appalachians, you know, of, in um, in the in the United States. Supposedly, if you have faith, you know, the, the, um, in God, the the uh, serpents won't won't bite you. But this figure, whoever she is, seems to have some sort of a secret connection to the powers of nature. She's got, there's a mountain lion sitting there on her head, as you can as you notice. Uh -huh. And then what I love about this is amazingly elaborate costume. This combination of a, a great complexity. Uh, it's, it's so chic, okay, with all the, these 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 hoops. There is a, a ritual apron with with, with you know cryptic um, signs on it. Uh, this this uh, this cinched waist. It's like a really a bustier drawn very very tight in the rib cage. The sleeves and yet the the protruding. Uh, breasts, this combination of like an elaborate costume with a sexual exhibitionism. The breasts seem to be very full, as if she's a nursing mother in some way. Her the eyes are wide, as if in a in a um, in, in a trance. Uh, and again, we, we have absolutely no idea what 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 this meant in the time. But it has this uh, strange, oddly fashionable and yet ritualistic quality. I would love to have talked about it and how, how you know how little we know about these archaeological objects. Now the next thing is let me go to the next. I really wanted to use this. This is a fragment from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And look how it speaks volumes to us, even though the, 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 most, the head is missing. It is um, certainly from the, the uh, 18th dynasty, which we know, you know, the Akhenaten, the rebel monotheist pharaoh. We know his wife, Nefertiti, who um, I wrote about in my first book, Sexual Personae. And so this is uh, not Nefertiti, but it is either um, Akhenaten's mother, Queen T, a very formidable woman. We have other, other portraits of her. Or it's, in, it's his, another one of his wives, possibly um, a wife called Kia. But how amazing this is. What I, uh, here we have just the lips, okay? oh, and even that, not, not wholly surviving. You can see you know, the incredible skill of the Egyptian craftsmen. We, we have the names of none of these, you know, the, the sculptors and the painters who, 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 who did all, all of these things. You can see the, the, the beautiful polished surface of the yellow jasper. And then now this uh, this statue um, might have been um, vandalized. It might have been smashed as part. You know, when when the 18th dynasty came to its close, uh, the um, the priesthood, you know, which had been pushed aside, then took over again and restored the worship of the old gods. And there are rumors that you know King Tut, who might have been either Akhenaten's um, nephew or even his son, um, that King Tut may have been murdered at a very, very young age. It's, and the, so all, the, all this rubble was left of this, uh, of this um, city, this new city that Akhenaten had created. Um, and I, I think that there's such a mysterious object just shows uh, also the, the drama of what, what lasts, what survives, you know, the, the fragility of art and the way art needs to be honored and not constantly, repetitively deconstructed. Okay? I, I, my attitude toward art is reverential. Okay? My, my masters in thinking about art were uh, first Oscar Wilde, whose work I, I stumbled on in high school in a secondhand bookstore, then his master, Walter Pater, who spoke of an ecstasy in perception, the ecstasy of not only looking at works of art, 
but even at, at light, you know, on the hills and in, in, in nature. And then, and then afterward, I, I was able to, you know, discover their their influences, which were Bo, Bo, Charles Baudelaire and Théophile Gautier, okay, of the art for art's sake movement. So that's my, that is my philosophy, um, and I absolutely detest the kinds of uh, superciliousness, okay, and cynicism, which is uh, uh, which are fostered in our students today in these um, universities by ham-handed Philistines who are masquerading as professors, okay, the entire academic establishment is corrupt as far as I'm concerned. All right, anyway, on to the next. All right, we have, all right now this is not a great, a great photograph of this statue. It, what, what this is is a, a small Roman copy that has survived of what was the colossal statue by Phidias of Athena in the Parthenon uh, on the Acropolis in, in Athens. I, I, I love this because it works very well with my students. It, it, it shows you how you have to learn iconography that is, that is native to any particular period okay, or religion in order to understand fully what's going on in our artwork. So here's this giant statue that was probably made out of wood. It was Chris Elephantine originally, that is, it was, uh, it, it, the skin was of ivory, and all the fittings were in, of gold. Okay, so it was a Chris Elephantine uh, statue. And then this small stone copy, that's so what we see here, um, Athena in, with her war helmet on. Okay, the visor is up, is, I mean, the, the sides are up, the flaps would come down if she, were, if she were in battle. She has these, like, war horses on her head and a griffin on her head. And her, her left hand is resting on her shield, behind which is coiled a serpent, which stands for this, uh, this resident spirit, Erichthonius of the, of the Acropolis. Snakes were worshipped on the, on, on the Acropolis. It was a snake garden, in fact, a snake den, which I refer to in my, my chapter on the Porch of the Maidens in my, in my book. Um, so here you have this, this, uh, this kind of you know, protective serpent there. She also had a, a, a spear that's missing from the, from the copy here. It was a large bronze spear just resting against, against her shoulder. In her right hand, she has, she, there, there's a kind of an angel-looking figure, headless here, uh, but that was Nike, that is the, the goddess of victory, you know, as in Nike, the sneakers, okay? The uh, Nike um, is dispatched like, from the gods to give victory to a, a, a side in battle. The, the great winged victory of Samothrace is, is um, at, the, at the Louvre, dominating the, the Daru staircase. Magnificent. In fact, the, the movie Funny Face has, has one, 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 practically a kind of biblical moment for me when Audrey Hepburn comes comes tri tripping merrily down the down the stairs in front of the Daru, um, you know, down the Daru staircase. And to me, it was like that. Yes, that's it. The entire transmission from ancient paganism to modern Hollywood. It's probably all of my, the ideas of my entire work are in that one one scene. So, it, so here you have the um, the victory landing. You, you see, she's about to dispatch it you know, to someone. Presumably, she's giving the Athena victory in, in battle. Uh, and because of the weight of stone in this case, there's a, there is a supportive um, column you know, there. And, and the other thing is, she's wearing um, this strange um, shawl uh, over her. It's the aegis, A-E-G-I-S. Uh, when, when, if, if, when, she, when she takes off the aegis and shakes it, 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 it um, you, it's, the, it's the thundercloud of her father Zeus with lightning and so on. So anyone who's under the aegis of, of anything is under the protection you know, of this. It, it probably was a goat skin, uh, people think. And then uh, so there's like kind of curly, you can see the goat's fur. And then right smack in the, in the middle of her chest is the head of Medusa, okay? which, which, is, which turns men to stone. So you have all this, this kind of uh, uh, symbol-laden, symbol-heavy kind of representation. I would love to have um, talked about, but I then eliminated simply because I think the quality of the, of the copy is just not good enough. 
All right, so on to the next. Now, I would not have used these specifically, but I wanted very much to use examples of Roman portrait art, okay? Whereas the Greeks idealized portraiture, okay? People always looked more glamorous, more godlike, even political leaders of Athens in surviving busts and so on. The Romans had a tradition of unsparing realism in portraiture. It's extremely interesting. Unfortunately, I couldn't find it on the web uh, in examples of what the ones I would have used, because they're, it's amazing, okay? I, particularly ones of, of older women um, of, of the patrician class. Uh, and let me just, uh, so you can see this man, um, every wrinkle is, is there. Uh, let's, go, let's go forward just to the, um, to the woman, okay? And this is, you know, again, it, it, it looks, she looks so contemporary. One could go into South Philadelphia, into Little Italy, and you know, find, find women who look exactly like this. There's no attempt to idealize her at all, okay? Um, there, there's a sense here that, you know, that you know, age brings wisdom and force of personality. Now, the reason for this realism is that there was an ancestor cult in, um, the, in the homes of Roman patricians, Romans of, of the upper class, a small room was devoted to, uh, to portraits, busts, okay, of the founders of the clan. Originally, these, uh, eventually they became stone, these busts, but originally they were wax death masks taken okay, off the deathbed, right? So they, they, that's, that, that is the source of this realism, an ancestor cult, worship, worship of, uh, of ancestors. Eventually they became ter terracotta and then eventually uh, um, a stone, but there are um, utterly amazing busts okay, of these of these women from the Roman late Roman Republic and, and early Empire, with all these wrinkles and they're just, you can you can feel the forcefulness of these Roman matriarchs of those of those clans. Um, so now um, let me uh, go forward and show. That this is something I considered using. All right, which is um, here's a Roman patrician. This is from the uh, first century um, BC, I think. Okay, here where we have him holding, in fact, these these um, two examples of the ancestor masks from his own home. He may be taking them to in a procession once a year. The the, the patricians uh, on one of the sacred holidays would would process. So you would have it's almost like that scene in in, in Macbeth. Okay, where there's that vision of the of, you know the heads of of the kings of Scotland leading down to to. To James, uh, and, and it's a little bit like that. These um, kind of tutelary, you know, protective spirits of, uh, of the past. So I thought of using this, and then, and then just didn't have room for it. So now let's go on. Now here's something I really wanted to use: one of these great late medieval crucifixes, and the one we're looking at here is by Cimabue, C-I-M-A-B-U-E. Um, it's from the um, the late, you know, 13th century, probably. Um, and it, what I'm saying is that. Even if you are a secular humanist, okay, that you should, in order to study art, you have to learn how to respond to religious feeling. Okay, all right, it's, it's absolutely crucial. Okay, uh, if you have young, our best students being trained to be cynical and dismissive about religion, then what you've done is cut them off. Okay, from being able to respond to some of our, some of the greatest art. And here is the, um, you know, the, the, uh, Jesus on the cross. You don't have to be. Um, Christian, in order to uh, respond to this, um, to this you know, scene of this, uh, this tortured and, and you know, self-sacrificing figure on the on the cross. So we're we're at that point in the late medieval period, leading toward the Renaissance, where um, the you know the loss of 
knowledge of how to show anatomy in the, the, the way the Greeks and the Romans had discovered it, and the, the lost during the Christian era, slowly, step by step, okay, a knowledge of anatomy is being, is being recovered. There are elements here which you know, look forward to the Renaissance, like the, um, this very diaphanous tunic around Christ's loins. There's this like, kind of S-curve to his body, very elegant, which is like that of all kinds of Gothic Madonnas in, in the uh, medieval period. Um, you have, but but, the, but the, the symbolism of the Byzantine era, the gold-heavy Byzantine era, which I have a whole chapter to in my book. I, I, have, a, I have a mosaic from Hagia Sophia in, um, in, in Istanbul. Um, it's still, it's still there. You, you, in other words, the normal spatial dimensions, real human space, is not observed. You have Mary at the foot of the cross. She's to our, our you know, to our left, and then John, the beloved disciple, is to to our right. You know, um, there, and they, they are they're they're literally standing at the foot of the cross, but in the symbolic Byzantine way, they're hovering, you know, at, at, at either end of, of of Christ's hands. And you have also this convention of very heavy uh, halos composed of gold hanging behind. It took a, it took a, a long while for um, painters of uh, sacred art to decide what to do with those halos. I mean, some, sometimes you have like so many halos that they're like um, they're all over each other and, and like, you know, it's like a chinaware, you know, thing. And, if, and finally people say, oh, the heck with the halos and they, and, and they got rid of them and you have very realistic. Um, uh, so now let me show you, here's an example of kind of the theme of fragility, uh, the fragility of our objects and, and the need for societies to, to, to conserve them because in, um, 1966, there was this great flood of the Arno in Florence, and, the, and as it happens, the Cimabue crucifix was in the church of Santa Croce, where it's always been, and the Santa Croce district was, was especially hard hit, 22 feet of floodwaters, right? And so, now, so here we have, um, here are these, the Florentine men, um, you know, he, in, I, this, these news pictures showing them taking the, the Chibabui crucifix out of the church for the first time since it was put in there, okay? and, uh, and, and, and suppressing their emotion about it because it is part of their uh, cultural you know, bequest and it was a, a work they had known since, their, since being children. Right? So here they're carrying it out um, in this way, and then we have one more um, picture, news picture of it. Um, and this in particular, as they're taking the crucifix to the doorway, it just, you can see the size of it, you see the destruction the waters have done, just completely washed away the face and the hands and, and so on. It was tr just tremendous loss. Uh, and the, the, it reminds me of that scene, you know, in the story, in, in the biblical story of, of Jesus stumbling, carrying the cross, and then Simon you know, coming in, this man, just bystander coming in to help him carry the cross. And it's, it's, to me, it's, it's almost like this. Um, and the men being, you know, some, like, almost like, because they're, they're soldiers and they're just going about their business here with this, um, you know, just tremendous loss. And let's go on. And now, I meant to have a chapter on, um, on the high Gothic style. And I really wanted to do rose windows. What we're looking at here is one of the great rose windows from the outside at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. I wanted to talk about the Gothic style, about the cathedral as the ultimate work of art, a collective and collaborative work of art of the Middle Ages. We don't know the names of any of those artisans, the ones who worked in the, did the stone and the stained glass. We, we have the name of a few architects, that's it. Okay? It, was all, it was all done for love of God. The, um, this, this, an artwork that was completely um, all-inclusive. There were no chairs. 
chairs, the, the entire, you know, the, 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 this cathedral, these, like a Chartres, would be visible from 30 miles away, dominating the skyline, much bigger than the village. And the whole congregation, the whole village, everyone would flock into these, these buildings, just stand there with the, with the light, you know, coming in, sunlight coming in through those windows, making this incredible uh, experience, you know, all light being identified with God's truth and, and the spirit. And this whole interior, uh, you know, a, a, a beautifully lit, just absolutely magnificent. So this is from the outside. I also would have talked about the way in the high Gothic style you have you have matter, the material, stone uh, rising, and you see how it's like those cone shapes on, you know, on those turrets. It like it, it goes it goes higher and higher and higher, thinner and thinner and thinner until it seems that you know matter is dissolving into into the sky. The spirit is dissolving the matter. So the the Gothic style is wonderful, aspirational. You do not have to be a Christian to be able to appreciate. Okay, this 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 open you know, toward, toward the heavens. So now we'll, we'll look at a shot from the inside of the Gothic windows, which is one, just one example. Oh, if I can get there. Okay, yeah. yes. Okay, it's just, it's just so many examples, you know, of, of this, this giant wheel. It's almost like a rotating wheel, like at the end of Dante's Divine Comedy, this, you know, this, the, the vision of Paradiso, everything moving around the center, the, the circle being the ultimate symbol of perfection in the medieval period. And each one of those windows, a work of art in itself, an episode, you know, from, from the Bible, a character from, from the Bible. Uh, I would have you know, talked also about just the, um, you know, the, the entire field, the medium of working in glass, um, and how um, this is a, a craft, one of the great one of the great crafts. Okay, which and there are still working uh, you know, artists artists working in glass um, uh, around the, the world. Okay, let me, let me keep going. Okay, and oh, and as, as part of this comprehensiveness of the Gothic cathedral, we've got uh, these gargoyles, of course, which are the funny little um, you know, comic creature, often demons. It's almost like an epic poem. That is, the, the Gothic cathedral contains heaven and hell. Uh, it, it contains you know the you know the, the, the celestial and also the underworld. So here are these these gargoyles ready to pounce on the faithful who are coming into the cathedral down below. Uh, the uh, their origin is as rain spouts. Okay, rain spouts that to uh, to to you know that would push the water away from the the, the surface of the stone. Some of the, some of those you can see in rows on, uh, on on various of the cathedrals. The word gargoyle is related to like gargle. You know, it has to do with the, with, with with the throat. I, I ended up not being able to use this. Instead, what I decided to do, my example of, of the Gothic is paradoxically a work of the Renaissance by Donatello, okay, whom I celebrated in my first book, Sexual Personae, for his homoerotic uh, sculpture of, of the nude David, I mean, one, one, the first, the first um, beautiful nude since the fall of Rome and the first freestanding sculpture since the fall of Rome. Uh, so Donatello had this long career and then at the end came back to, to, into Florence and suddenly produced this um, this strange you know, six foot tall work in 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 wood of, of Mary Magdalene looking absolutely gaunt and emaciated. When people see this, people gasp. People gasp. Okay, when they when they come in, in, in the act to see it in person, it, it, it's absolutely horrifying. It is a return to the Gothic style by one of the masters of the Renaissance. So that's how the Gothic is in is, is in my book. Now here, oh, I would have loved to use this. Okay, this is not a great, not a great image of it. Okay, Duccio Maesta, the Maesta, meaning the Majesty. 
dates from, you know, approximately 1308. It's in Siena. It's this huge altarpiece, okay, where you have the enthroned Madonna. Now, this is exactly what Martin Luther and the other reformers objected to, okay, in, in medieval Catholicism. Um, you know, Mary, anyone raised Italian Catholic is always shocked when you go to the Bible, and Mary's not in there. I mean, where's Mary? Okay, it's like Mary whizzes by. Oh, there, you know, she whizzes by a few times. That's it, right? If you were raised Italian Catholic, she's everything. Madonna mia. She's like, her image is everywhere. Okay? And there's no doubt that that Mary of the southern, you know, southern European Catholicism was a survival of the goddess. You know, the, the, you know, the country people, my ancestors, just like went right on worshiping the goddess. Oh, we'll call her Mary now. Okay, fine. Not, not Sibylle or whatever. <laughs> whatever. Right. So, so here she is with the infant Jesus. It took a long while for, for the, um, you know, the late medieval and early Renaissance painters to, to figure out how to show a baby. Okay, how do you show a baby? So you have all these like very adult-looking Jesuses, okay? rather like old, aging babies okay, on, on, on Mary's lap, until finally they figured out Raphael was one, one of the first to figure out what to actually look at baby fat and look at baby hands and actually work, work, work from nature. But it's absolutely magnificent. You have all these angels arrayed, all these, all these figures from the Old Testament. Um, and, and, and I, I saw this in person about six years, years ago, and I could not believe it. It's overwhelming absolutely overwhelming. The, um, the, the, the gold in it you know, comes out, it's a magnificent object. Now, it's, this is studied in, the history, in art history courses for what's on the back, because what's on the back are these, it's, it's the dawn of realism, you know, it's looking forward to Renaissance realism. So you have these episodes from the Bible, and Duccio was working, how do, how do you show, you know, on a flat surface? How do, how do you give the illusion of depth on a flat, flat surface? Okay, so the, so the, back, the back panels here are why most people know it. But I would have shown it, you know, for, it's kind of cultic qualities, celebratory qualities, absolutely overwhelming. Right. Uh, and when, you know, when this was done, uh, when, uh, when Dutro had completed it, it, it a, a holiday was declared in the city, and um, a grand procession was, a sacred procession, to accompany this you know, to, the, to the cathedral. Uh, and, and people you know, well, had, had candles, and there were like hymns and all kinds of things. So that's, that's, uh, it also shows you know, the, the power of these you know, art objects in, in history. Now, I wanted to have some, some pages from Leonardo da Vinci's notebooks in, in, you know, in the book, and I just didn't have space for it, but the notebooks were never intended to be seen. Um, they are where, where uh, you know, Leonardo, with his, uh, his strange backwards you know, mirror hand, handwriting, was making you know, notes to himself. He was obviously dissecting cadavers, okay, that which was against the law. Okay, church law forbade it. So obviously he was like he was purchasing cadavers by cover of night. People were stealing, grave robbing, or whatever whatever they were doing. But here you have, of course, the, the rediscovery of anatomy, which had been lost. The ancient Greek uh, sculptors, you know, had had studied the way the body looks, and and um, for like a thousand years that knowledge was lost. So we here, here we have sort of art and science combined in, in, um, in Leonardo's inquiring mind. I probably would have used this, Im is this image, which is, which is really kind of hair-raising. And it is it's very clear that Leonardo dissected the body, you know, a dead woman who was pregnant. Um, and then you, you have the sense of the strange violation you know, of a taboo to look right into the womb okay, and see this baby. And to me, that this page seems to really move toward an art, an artwork, because of the sense, you have the sense that the, that the fetus is almost huddled, it doesn't want to face life, doesn't want to go out, there's like this strange angst under the surface here, as if the, as if the baby is alive, as if Leonardo has projected himself in, in some way into it. I mean, that's certainly what I would have tried to um, argue. 
Now, oh, I wanted to use this, okay, but I, this is one of my favorite works from the Sistine Chapel ceiling, but I just couldn't work with it. I used so much of Michelangelo in sexual persona, I decided I shouldn't. Uh, but this is the scene from the, the ceiling. Uh, where you, you have the temptation of, of Eve there on, on one side to our left, okay? And by, by this very strange serpent who is, who is female, that is certainly not biblical, okay? To have this female who's in collusion with the, you know, the, the, the female mirror image of, of Eve, uh, that serpent wound around the, the tree. You see how Adam on the left seems like very childlike. He's, he's out of balance, he's awkward. Um, and Eve is in control, look how powerful she is on that side. And then all of a sudden, okay, Mistake, a mistake was made, okay? uh, and uh, and now okay here on the right is the expulsion from the garden, and you have the angel not with a flaming sword but almost with a goad. You see, it's like an ox goad right into the head of um, into the neck of, of Adam, it's saying in effect, you know, this is the now the decree that mankind would be subject to death, but also hard labor and the and you know and birth pangs and so on. And you can see now how the relationship, the biblically you know endorsed relationship between male and female has been restored here. Eve is cowering and afraid, and Adam has become a man, you see, at this moment. So even though he's suffering, he, he has a her heroic um, kind of you know, proportion. But I, I love this because it's almost surreal to have, have these two episodes you know, together and separated, in, in, you know, the, where the panel is separated, the two, the two stories, by this, by this tree in the middle. Now, unfortunately, what we're looking at is an example of a, is a, is a, a picture taken of the clean. That, that, this would allow me to, the clean ceiling, would allow me to talk about conservation, the theories about conservation. Some people feel very strongly that the Sistine Chapel ceiling was, was excessively cleaned and that, and that, there, were, there, were, that there, were, there was a level of Michelangelo's later um, darkenings and, and, you know, and, and subtleties that had been removed. Uh, but certainly it is kind of a shock to those who were raised in my generation seeing images from the Sistine Chapel which, which were very you know, blackened with soot from all the candles you know, of so many centuries of the, is the, the Pope's chapel. And I think there was a kind of, uh, what can I say, a gravitas to the unclean Sistine Chapel ceiling. And, so, and now all of a sudden we see this like bright oranges and it's like everything seems so day glow and, um, and there's a kind of, there is a kind of um, what can I say, a starkness now to, the, to those, those images on, on the ceiling, whether this was Michelangelo's original intention or if there really has been destruction or removal is not clear. It will remain in dispute. Okay, now, ah, this is the Three Graces by Rubens. Uh, now, the, the graces are, are you know, figures of, of grace and beauty and elegance from antiquity. And I, I, I love this because it, it, I think that there should be much more Rubens, okay, in the popular, out there in popular culture, to encourage, um, you know, the women to see that the particular, you know, the current fanatical. Um, you know, ideal type, which is like very thin, you know, like kind of the Gwyneth Paltrow look, which is like very, it's, it's, it, when you have in the kind of like tubular look, Pilates toned, where everyone looks extremely thin, you know, um, that that is a very temporary fad that throughout, throughout history, it is more likely that the ideal woman would have been, uh, had all this, you know, comfortable, well-upholstered cushioning, okay, and so on, that, that, that we're seeing here. So the, the ideal Rubensian type, you see, these are not just, these are not like French odalis, 
obelisks lying around, you know, uh, like just like in Sam Nolan, there's some, like, they're not like hair, this is not like a harem picture from the uh, late 19th century French painting. You notice how active these women are. The Rubens woman is, is active and powerful. I mean, look at that, the woman on our left. Look, look at that, look at her knees, her feet, okay? The, the muscles everywhere, okay? She has this, all this abundant fat. She's, this, she's, the Rubens woman is a symbol of abundance, okay, and, and plenty, but also vitality and humor. I mean, it always reminds me, you know, the St. Pauli girl, beer, you know, the, the, the beer garden girl, okay, with, the, the, with her breasts, like, popping out of her low-cut Bavarian costume, and she has, like, three beer mugs in one hand and three beer mugs in another. It's like power and joy and mirth and like that, okay? So I think the Rubensian women, okay, they, this is what the, the female body wants to do this, okay? This is what female hormones want them to, to do, and this is healthy. Let the female body live, liberate the female body, okay? We need, we need to, it's another example where the eye needs to be retrained, okay? Uh, there, there, there's like this punishing cult of, uh, of, um, of thinness that, that it comes into fashion in urbanized periods, okay? So the, 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 there's, like, there's back and forth, an oscillation through history, going back and forth between the ideal woman uh, looking like a, you know, like a fruit or vegetable, as, as Kenneth Clark would have said, and then this other side, which uh, Kenneth Clark called the crystalline Venus, okay, who is like, who is small breasted and very, and very linear. So we're in a period now um, which is actually a very strange and kind of, um, you know, probably neurotic period where we want women's bodies to be very thin, but we want the breasts to be ample, okay. And now only Angelina Jolie, okay, was born like that. Okay? Um, and so, so you, you have this strange kind of surgically modified look that's out there that, that, that is it's absolutely disastrous, I think, for, for young women's uh, functioning. All right, oh dear, I, I must move faster. Okay, we'll never, we're still with Rubens. Oh no. All right, let me, let me, oh, oh dear, dear, dear. All right, let me go. I, I must speed on here. All right, let me, I'm trying to push the right button. Ah, here we go. Ah, Madame de Pompadour. I was, wanted to use her for as an example of, uh, of the Rococo, and instead I decided just to go with um, the whole interior decor itself, okay? That is, you know, the, the actual um, ornamentation of, of, of Rococo. But I, I love this painting, okay, because um, it's by Boucher, and it, um, she, and Madame de Pompadour, who was the official mistress of Louis XV, was a, um, she was a great patron of the arts. And a and very literate and witty woman. What I love about this is this high fashion woman. Okay, look, look at that dress. Look at the shoes and the ribbons and the you know the, the, and everything. The bracelet, the necklace, everything. Okay, it, it, everything in her hair. And yet she's reading. A fashionable woman reading. Okay, this is the, a first. Okay, in the history of art. Right, a fashionable woman reading and also. She writes, you notice, like there's her ink pot and her quill, and she has her letters and so on and so forth. So I think this is fabulous, sort of this combination of outer and inner, okay? Madame de Pompadour, she's her, her fabulosity, okay? Now, what else? Uh, oh, I wanted to, my favorite paintings. This is by John Constable, Wivenhoe Park, and, I, and this is his early style, where you have this, this gorgeous landscape. You see how, how in the distance we see, there's, there's a stately house, there, there's the citadel of Power of, of inherited wealth, okay? And, and look, it's almost, it's almost eclipsed by nature. The trees are more important, okay? The trees are higher from this, from this position, you see? That's constable. He'll do that with, with church steeples, with, with you know, town buildings. Nothing is more important to him than nature. And we've got these, the cows. The cows are more important. The cows in the foreground.
around. And you see the swans and the, the fishing going on and so on. Just a wonderful sense of, of serenity and beauty. So I would have presented this as an example, you know, of, um, you know, it's, it's, real, it's, it's really early realism, but yet it also has this romantic view of how healthful and, and, and you know, exuberant nature is and how small mankind is, you know, in, on, you know, on the surface of the earth. Oh, and I wanted to use this. So I ended up. This is Turner's burning of the Houses of Parliament, and he was he was an eyewitness at this disaster in 1834. This conflagration which consumed the old Houses of Parliament. So you see, look at the people of London to the left there. This is this is from the South Bank, looking at the at the, this, this disaster, and you have the, you know this tremendous the wind, I mean, the flames, uh, the smoke going, in the, and then look how it's all uh, all reflected in the, as the Thames. It's like mirrored in the Thames. The Thames. Is care, okay? Let them burn. It's just like flowing by, and I could go on and on about this. Instead, I ended up only referring to the painting when I celebrate the great finale of George Lucas's Revenge of the Sith, okay, which is my last chapter, and I say that, in effect, the apocalyptic fires of the, of the volcano planet of Mustafar, you know, and the destruction of the, of the, of the Senate chamber on Coruscant, okay, and so on, um, which is the end of politics, that it's actually, it has this kind of a, a power, you know, apocalyptic power. Oh dear, I mean, let's move faster here. All right, now, um, oh, I, I wanted to use Angra, okay, but I, instead I, I mean, Jacques-Louis David creates this neoclassic style at, with, you know, with his, his uh, Roman history paintings of the 1780s, uh, and it starts an entire movement that would become salon painting of, of the 19th century, and then Angra is in that neoclassical uh, uh, you know, tradition, which means that you have very sharply contoured shapes, okay? That is, the human body is presented as, a, as if it's a work of a sculpture, okay? These sharp edges. Now, there's a, there are wonderful portraits by Angra, I-N-G-R-E-S, of course. Uh, this is simply, he did a, fa a family, mother, father, and, and the children, and this is a, a girl, Mademoiselle de Riviere, who actually died. She's probably around 15. She died within a year, okay, of this. So there's a pathos from that. But this painting was not well received. It was, it was exhibited. It was thought to have too much white in it. It was thought that her neck was too long. There was an oddity about it. And I find it very strange, very strange indeed how sophisticated sophisticated she seems, and you know, it's a strange combination. You know, her body is really undeveloped, and yet look at these gorgeous gloves that she's wearing, and, and, the, and the, you know, this elegance with which she's standing there, and you see she's like a well-brought-up young girl. There's something about it that's, that is, very, to me, very haunting. Um, so I would have used that. Now, now we're up to Dega into realism, and there, there are these, all of these um, paintings that Degas did in the 1870s of, um, of dance classes, and, and he would go to the racetrack and show the jockeys, et cetera. Now, and, what, and what I would have talked about here is how um, Degas was influenced by photography, okay, and how he, it, it, this is before the handheld camera existed yet, okay, but you know, some of his, his pictures of jockeys, look, it seems as if we're on horseback along with the jockeys and, and we have a handheld camera. It's really, it's really very prophetic. But this, you see, this, if someone had seen this picture at the time, you know, and uh, this is why the, the Impressionists and the Realists had tr such trouble showing, having these paintings shown in the great salon uh, jury shows, is that they would have said, this is inept. Absolutely inept. Degas, you have no talent as an artist. The composition is completely wrong. Look, who could who dream of cutting off legs like that in the upper left-hand corner, these people coming down a stairway? Completely ugly. Okay, but of course, we don't notice. We don't notice what was shocking and radical about it. It looks perfectly normal to us. We're used to seeing photographs, okay, where the edge is cut off things. Okay, so it looks absolutely normal to us. Right? So here is Degas. radical what he's doing to simply show these descending legs. And also, he's positioning at center a girl leaning over, 
So we're looking like right into her rear end. Okay, that would be considered quite vulgar. Okay, by the standards of, of the conservative painters at the time, critics. Right. And notice how the faces of practically all of the girls completely shadowed. Okay, there's no no storyline about the individual girls. It's like it's like we're just, it's, it's the random, the spontaneous. You know, it's, it's the momentary. Right? Uh, do you see how art, you know, um, it can can be very radical at a certain point and yet look perfectly normal? Like you you display this today, and people think, oh. Just a sentimental painting by Degas of a bunch of young girl, you know, dancers. But no, they're actually quite radical in in, in its um, in its uh, structure. All right. Um, this is one of the very last paintings by Van Gogh. I wanted to, I would have loved to include it, and just couldn't. Okay. So um, this is a, it's it's all oh, this is a wheat field with crows. That, that's all it is. Okay. Now when we look at this, we were, we're so used to looking at Van Gogh now that we think, oh, that's absolutely glorious. We love the choppy brushstrokes. We love the thick layers of, of, of paint, you know, on, on it and so on. Uh, but at the time, it looked crazy. People said you're crazy. Okay. People, you know, and uh, even today, you've got you know people going around trying to prove that Van Gogh suffered from some weird optical disorder and a neurological disturbance. And so no. Okay. Uh, you can see how this. This is looking forward to abstract painting. If you can just just imagine away the you know the wheat field, the crows, you know, anything recognizable, you see it looks like bands of color. It, it looks like something that could have been produced in abstract art of the um, late 1950s, early early 1960s. Uh, that, that, now at the time, people would have said, "What is this? What is this composition? You have this road going nowhere, okay, in, in the middle of it, okay? What is this? There's nothing exceptional about this, okay? Um, you know, you, like you can't you can't even do a cloud, okay? You're capable of even even Carrying off a cloud. Okay. To us, it's like energy, vitality. It's like this whole rhythm. It's almost psychedelic. Okay, the way the way you get this like sense of the vitality of nature and these crows, almost like check marks. Okay, just just going all random, all all anonymous over. I think it's absolutely magnificent in this like surging energy in in um, in nature. It's one of my absolutely favorite Van Goghs. Now Cezanne, I have. Oh, uh oh, oh no, we're running really running out now. Oh dear, 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 dear. Okay. Um, Oh, I'm not going to pause about Cezanne. Let me let me just go to, to do. I want to do a salon painting. Okay, this is Alma Tetterbaum. Okay, uh, the, 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 these paintings, the, the paintings that won the prizes, the, paint, the paintings that made these painters rich. Okay, gave them mansions and, and, and horses and carriages and prestige and prizes. And these paintings, once there was the triumph of modernism, uh, the, the Cezanne line, the Van Gogh line, the you know the, the, this um, from post-impressionism into, into Picasso and so on. Um, then these museums took these paintings off exhibit and put them in, the, in, in embarrassment in 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 the basement. So when I was in college in the 1960s, and right into, into grad, graduate school, into the early 70s, um, the, if you could not admire these. Um, this was considered tacky, you know, bad art. Um, and, and, and so there were all these interesting works of, of Victorian art that, um, that were considered to belong to the dustbin of, of history. But now that's really over, over the past decades, um, people, there's been a lot of scholarship in, in this area. Museums have, have rescued these. They're on display. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's um, it's now possible to both to admire both Cezanne and Alma Tedeman. Now, uh, you know, this is what we're seeing here. I, this is the one I would have chosen as an example of salon art, conventional salon art, and it is um, the triumph of Titus. Okay, this is uh, this is the, the, his father, the Emperor Vespasian, is with his uh, with his garment over his head, indicating he's sacrificing thanks to the gods. Being followed by the young Titus with with a laurel crown, and if you'll notice in the background, here's what Titus has brought back from the conquest of Judea the great menorah, 
okay, which also is still there in the Arch of Titus near the Roman Forum, where you can see the great menorah being carried in procession in triumph. Right? This was after the Romans went in and put down Judea, and this is the beginning of the diaspora, et cetera, et cetera. So this is highly significant in terms of Western history, but you're getting this, this triumph. So it's, 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 it's an illustration of a scene from, from history, that, that, and that was considered an important painting. An important painting is about an important moment. Now, and that's why Degas' work or Van Gogh's work was undervalued for a very long time because it was thought, well, what's important about this? Okay, there's nothing significant you know, about it. All right, you know what? I've got to stop because we, we've, we've run out of the time. I have not, not, didn't even get to Helmut Newton at all. Oh, no. Or, or Matisse. Okay, I just have a few more. Oh, dear. And Henry Moore and, the, and Chichen Itza and Klaus Oldenburg. And, oh, dear, 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 dear. Well, all right. Well, I, I, I must stop here. And, 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 and um, what did, are we, what, what's going on now? Huh? Well, we're going directly to the, to the signing. Okay, then. All right. Yeah. Um, all right. I'm so sorry. We ran out of time, and you all have your own lives you know, to, to live. So I, I'm so, I, I must release you to freedom. Okay. <laughs> so. Thank you so much, Camille. I'm sorry there isn't time for Q&A, but I can tell everybody agrees it was better to have every second of her that we could. It was wonderful. And thank you for your fresh views on art history. I, I'm glad, by the way, that she mentioned the, um, the early Renaissance work, because we have an exhibition coming in March. So please go and get a book signed. Thank you, the Glaskins, too, for supporting this. Thank you for listening to this Art Guy of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.